with that, we are officially live. So, welcome to the Dining Room Studio. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you made it. We've been excited to get together. And I was talking about the conference I was doing, but yesterday, on my presentation, anytime I showed Sunny, they were like, oh my gosh. So it's like, all I need to do is use the dog, and that'll reel people in. But once I started talking about the actual content, I could tell they started checking out. Checking right. out. <laughs> you know what I mean? So every fifth slide, Photoshop a picture of them in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when did you first get involved with wrestling? Oh, man. Uh, seventh grade. I, I, I got a little bit of a late start compared to where most kids start now. But, you know, it was one of those things. I had a, uh, a time in my life where it was like I was, I was not very happy with the way things were going for me. And, you know, saw the flyers hanging up in the hallway and thought that this was an opportunity to, to change a few things in my life. So... I'm very grateful that I did. And did you have a really good coach at the jump or was it a? It's middle school wrestling is kind of a different animal because it's a much shorter season. And so, you know, I, I had a guy named Dave Rader who was my coach and he was, he was great. And then he, he kind of developed that love for me, uh, for the sport. The, the difficult thing about it was I was terrible. Uh, I didn't want to match seventh, eighth grade, you know, and then, you know, kind of got to high school, got a little bit of hair on the chest and kind of figured the thing out. Like I wanted to quit after seventh grade, but my dad had just bought me wrestling shoes and he wouldn't let me. So I'm oh, very, wow. very grateful that he wouldn't let me uh, back out of that thing when things got hard. So and, were you just getting pinned? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it, it was pretty terrible, man. But <laughs> I, I was not a huge fan of the sport, but, uh, you know, and also my football coaches were like, yeah, you should wrestle and make you a better football player. And you know, as it turned out, like I ended up being a better wrestler than football player. Wow. Yeah. So wrestling is one of those sports. It's kind of like track. Whenever you lose, it's whenever you lose, it's obvious, you know, like in whenever I did track, if I got blown out, the person would be finishing, people would be clapping and I would still be running, right. trying to finish the race. <laughs> so it's like, whenever you get pinned, you're laying on your back and that guy's standing up and celebrating. So it's a different animal learning how to lose. It is. And, it, and it's only on you. Like you can't, you, there's no help from anybody else. I mean, you got a coach in the corner, but they, and now as a coach, that's one of the most frustrating things for me is it's like, you can't do it for the kids. It's yeah. all on them, you right. know? And right, it's, right. and the, the way we explain it to people is like, you know, every time that you go to a practice or you go to an off season activity or you lift weights or whatever, you're putting a penny in the jar and then when you go out there in the middle of that circle, there's nobody else that can help you. And you take your jar and you dump it out on the line and they dump their jar out. And whoever has the most pennies usually wins. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So it's those reps that you put in. So you start wrestling seventh grade? Seventh, yes, sir. And then you get better at wrestling than you are football. Was that a surprise to you? Um, if you would have asked ninth grade me, yeah. right, which one I would be better at, I would have told you football. But, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. but you know, as, as I went through my high school career, I had a fantastic high school wrestling coach, Lee Woodford. And, uh, and he, he knew what, what makes high school kids tick and what motivates them. And he, he put me in a position to be successful. So favorite high school wrestling moment. Oh gosh. Um, I, I would probably have to say, uh, watching, I had a teammate that, that won a high school national championship and had a come from behind win in, I think we were in Pittsburgh for that one. And that was a pretty special thing. Cause that's not something you see every day. Wow. So best racer in the nation. Yep. Scott Coleman. He went on, he was a, a all American for Iowa state university down the road. 
Whoa. Did you ever wrestle Scott? In I practice? did. He was one of my practice partners and he beat the tar out of me just about <laughs> every day, which was, you know, that's, that's one of the things about our sport is you don't get better by pounding on people. You get better by being pounded on. And, and even though I had 50 pounds on the guy, he pounded on me pretty much every day. Yeah. Wow. Cause it's all about technique, right? Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, if you've got, uh, it, you just gotta have that, uh, that elusive combination of, of physical attributes and techniques, strength, speed, quickness, all of those things kind of roll together. And Scott had all of those, man. So who's the Michael Jordan when it comes to wrestling? Oh, it depends on who you talk to. Uh, Kyle Dick, Jordan Burroughs, guys like that. Um, yeah. If I would probably say Jordan Burroughs just because he's been so dominant for so long. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about wrestling, but I heard about Jordan Burroughs. And then I went and I looked up his highlight tapes. And I didn't know the rules about wrestling, but I could tell he was dominating. Right. Yeah. He's just so fast and so big. And he's a great example for our kids too, because you know, you think, oh, someone that's a multiple time Olympic champ, world champ, all this stuff that, you know, they, they have to been just this phenom since they were little. And no, Jordan Burroughs wrestled in Nebraska and was a one time high school state champ, you know? Wow. So it's like, you know, he, he started coming into his own, his senior year in high school. And then, uh, and then from there, like just by putting in just an unimaginable amount of work and like fine tuning his craft, he, he became the greatest of all time. And now he's, like you said, Mr. USA when it comes to wrestling. So you shared a cool fact with me. You shared that you were the first coach to win men's and women's state championship for a high school team in the same year. Our school was, yes, sir. Wow. Yeah, first one in the United States. It's, you know, it's, it's rare that you get the opportunity to do something that's like, truly historic and there's something that i love about being the first to do something and we've had a lot to do or a lot of opportunities to do that with the with the advent of our girls wrestling program and you know that was was one of those very cool moments for us within 48 hours one and two state championships doesn't happen very often yeah so do you coach like girls and boys differently what's that like yeah you have to um just for the main main reason is we have so many more newcomers on the girl side, but the, on the boy side we had, and I don't coach the boys anymore, but we have, you know, so many of the kids in that program have been wrestling since they were little. They've been in my system for a while with the girls program, especially that first year it was, you know, we had 62 girls come out and only one of them had ever set foot on a wrestling mat before. So uh, on the girl side, we, we tend to like try to be a, a lot better at, some very specific things. Uh, yeah. We that first year we called it our Big Fifteen. Like on the boys' side, there there are literally hundreds of thousands of variations on wrestling moves that you can do. On the girls' side, we showed them fifteen, and that was it. And we got really stinking good at those fifteen, and that was good enough for our beginning girls to to beat eighty five percent of their opponents because like we were just so solid fundamentally. Now that wasn't enough for us to beat those girls that have been wrestling since they were in, you know, second grade. But at the same time, our first year kid probably wasn't going to beat that kid anyway. So we just kind of played the numbers and it's like, okay, let's get really solid in these positions. And then every year we open up the playbook just a little bit more because now we're starting to get that foundation of girls that have wrestled for a while. Now at the same time it's like people here, oh you you've got so many girls on the team, what an advantage. And it's like, well yes and no. Yes, because it, it gives us depth, but at the same time, every single year, half of the girls on the team have never done it before. So we have to go at a uh, a pretty slow pace at the beginning of the year, and, and we can't give the individualized attention that every other school can give to their right. experienced wrestlers. So. Mm-hmm. 
because such a large quantity, it's kind of like we got to make sure we don't compromise on quality. Right. Yeah. And you never know which one of those first year kids that comes in the room is going to end up being one of your stars. We have that happen every single year. So it's like you, you can't ignore the new ones, but at the same time, you don't want to ignore the, the veterans that have been around for a while. So it, it's a delicate balancing act. Yeah. How do you recognize potential and capitalize on that? It's, it, it's really hard to explain. Uh, your, your listeners that are, that are wrestling people, they get it. Um, you can just look at someone and you can say they move like a wrestler, like they fall the right way. They, their footwork moves a certain direction and you can just kind of tell. Like we had this girl named Ashley this year that like she walked in and like on the second day of practice, I caught her on the way out of the room. I was like, have you done this before? Like, did you wrestle for another school? And she's like, no. And she ended up placing fourth at state this year, like having no experience whatsoever coming into the year, which is uh, pretty unheard of. So mm-hmm. Yeah, they just have that out of the box. Right. They have that certain skill set that aligns with what's needed. For sure. Yeah. And I hear a lot of churches, or not churches, a lot of coaches say you can't teach work ethic. Like the talented person can get beat by the harder worker. Like, do you see that? Uh, somewhat. I think everybody has their own set point. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've, I've heard some people say, well, you can't teach work ethic or you can't teach speed. You can't teach quickness. Right. In a way, I think that's kind of a cop out. Um, you can improve in those areas no matter who you are. And sometimes it takes a little bit more mental conditioning with some kids to, to get them to that spot. But, uh, you know, if you've got a kid that again, out of the box has a higher work ethic, then that's going to be a little easier, you know, but, but there's no kid that you can't teach to, to invest more in themselves. Yeah. It's kind of like just, teaching them that it matters. Exactly. Yeah, that it's worth it. And oftentimes they don't get that from somebody else. One of the things I'm curious about, and I'm asking a lot of wrestling questions because I'm curious about wrestling and I have like a mastermind right here. So right it's like, I better tap into it. But with basketball or with football, you will have scout teams and they will replicate the playing style of who you're about to play with wrestling do you know in advance who you're about to wrestle and if so do you have people replicate their style uh not so much when we get to the postseason yes but during the season like they seed out every individual tournament so like you've got a general idea of who's going to be there but you don't know when you're going to match up with them so we we spend probably the first seven eighths of the season focusing on us and then when we get to regionals and state and we have a good idea of who we're going to wrestle in what order then we start focusing on our opponents a little bit you know yeah totally and then what's been your favorite moment as a coach uh man that's a tough one um is that harder than the wrestler like me asking you your favorite moment as a wrestler yeah uh, that that one's really difficult because a lot of those moments come in come in the losses that we've had where we see girls that like interesting or and like girls are old guys you know i I, uh like we had a, a match this year where we've got this one girl named Tiani, who's just, she's a bulldog, man. And she weighs about 150 pounds and she's wrestling 170 and very oversized, but she's every bit as strong as anybody else. And she's wrestling this, this girl that got third at state last year and in the finals at this one tournament. And Tiani just starts throwing her all over the gym, establishes a big lead. Then the other girl has a dramatic comeback and like, we have a chance to win it as time's expiring, but we lose 10 to nine. And as she's coming off the mat, like throughout that whole match, our whole team is on the sideline. Everybody's pounding on the mat, screaming for, her. and like she comes off the mat after losing and just gets mobbed by her teammates with a, wow. a big group hug, gets carried off the mat. And it's like, when do you see that in other sports 
when a, a pitcher gives up a, a base hit to lose a game or like, you know, quarterback throws an interception and then gets carried off the field. That doesn't happen. Yeah. And so I, and we get those moments a lot in, in, especially in girls wrestling. Um, we had one that was pretty special this year, Addie Broxman, um, who is the all time career pins and wins record. And she has a bunch of other career statistics that are state records in Kansas. And, she lost a match at state. Like she was the favorite to win a state title uh, as a senior and took an upset in the in second round, I think. And then you come back the next day, work your way through the backside of the bracket and going for third and fourth place. She was wrestling the same girl that beat her the previous day and ended up scoring a pin for us, which that secured the state championship. And so it was wow. like, you know, it's, you have that moment. And another great thing about our sport, man, you have that moment where it's like, everything that I've worked for for the last four years gets ripped out from underneath me when she got, got caught and got pinned by this girl on the first day, because once you lose one, there's no way you can win a title. And it's like, and I just told her after that match, I was like, you got, you have a decision to make and you're the only one that can make it. You can either tuck tail and run or you can stay in battle. And she did exactly what we thought she would do. She stayed and battled and then comes all the way back. And in that match for third place, she pins that gal which then secured a team state championship for us. So it's like the wrestling gods, the universe, whatever you want to call it, had that, that plan in place for her so that, you know, she could have that one moment where she's the one that gets carried off the mat and the whole place just goes absolutely bonkers for her. roof blew off the place. It was awesome, man. Yeah. Um, so yeah, very, very pleased that she got to have her moment. And it's despite her failing in that one moment or losing, really it wasn't a grand failure because she came back Right. And do you have speeches prepared whenever people lose? Or? I don't. No. It's because every situation is different. Every kid's different. You have to respond to them in different ways, you know? And I, I, I don't have anything in the chamber. It's good because a lot of times those, those losses come at the least or when you least expect them, you know? And so it's, you just kind of kind of read the situation, read the kid and lean on your, your past relationship with them and, and let them know what they need to know in that moment. And a lot of times it's just, don't go break anything, you know, because like, people aren't when you, when you have that that short term traumatic moment where um, something that in in your eighteen year old eyes is is not great that just happened to you. Like you're not in a place to receive coaching a lot of times. So you know, I just tell them, hey, don't go break anything. Don't give them five minutes, and then once they've kind of calmed down a little bit, then we we try to get really curious about why what happened just happened and what we can do to correct it in the future. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good word. Don't go break anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good response as a coach. There's this NBA playoffs right now and the Milwaukee Bucks were expected to win it all. And they just lost to Miami heat underdogs four one. They only got one win and they lost four times. So in the post interview, you got the star of the Milwaukee Bucks, Giannis, and he's answering these questions and a reporter asks him, do you consider this a failure? And he got a little emotional about it and he was thinking about it because he said, really in his mind, there's no failure in sports. It's all different steps to success. Because two years ago, they won the national championship. And he said, prior to that, we hadn't won the national championship for 50 years. Is do you want to consider those 50 years of failure or was it steps to success where we ultimately won the national championship? Smart. Yeah. And it's 
hard to think like that in the moment, but truly with any, with sports and really any creative endeavor, it's like the stuff that you're not going to win all the time. You know, like Michael Jordan played 15 seasons and won six. So he lost the national championship more than he won. Yet we still consider him the goat, you right. know? So that's interesting. It is. Yeah. And we experienced that last year. Like we, you know, girls wrestling starts the 2019, 2020 season. We won a state championship. We won another one the next year. Last year we got second. And it's, it is really hard to reframe for, for high school kids. It's like most coaches are blessed or are, are, are blessed if they ever bring home a trophy from a state tournament. Like I, I know a lot of coaches that have coached for 40 years and never once even sniffed a second place trophy. And it's like, here's this monumental achievement that you guys had, but yet everybody's walking around like the dog just got hit, you know? Yeah. And it's like, and, and it's, it's hard to keep perspective there sometimes, but yeah, like just because you don't, don't win don't, doesn't mean that you didn't learn invaluable lessons along the way and, yeah. and that you, you didn't cultivate relationships that you didn't have before and strengthen the ones that you already had, you know? Um, and I will never attach the value of one of my teams to the size of the trophy that they bring home. Like I've had some really successful teams in the past um, that quite frankly, probably didn't develop in some of those like interpersonal areas as much as I would have liked them to. Uh, but, and I've had some teams that like weren't great and gosh, they were fun to be around. And it was such a, a valuable experience for everybody. So it, it just, it really depends on where you are in your life, but it's super important to, to keep perspective there. Yeah. Like I've been on teams where we were winning, but it's almost boring. It's right. almost like, is this it? Like we won, we even blew them out, but still this can't be it. And then you get on those teams where there's friendships, you get on those teams where you can tell you're actually growing as a person. And then you're like, you lose, but you leave thinking like, Hey, I've improved the quality of my life though. Right. You know, uh, one of the things I was thinking about whenever KU lost this year, they weren't supposed to lose. They got beat early on the March Madness and people were really sad. And it's like, we just won the national championship, okay? Right. There are teams who are celebrating making it into the playoffs for the first time ever in school history. But we're being sad that we didn't win the whole thing. So it's cool to be sad about that. But at the same time, recognizing how lucky you are if you ever win at all is really important. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's like, whenever I, I have a, a kid that takes a loss or a team that takes a loss uh, to try to reframe it. It's like, who won your weight last year? Who won state at your weight? And they never know. And it's like, okay, well, who won the, that match that happened right before your match? And they're like, well, I don't know. I wasn't paying attention. I was like, it was right in front of you. Yeah. And you didn't even know. Like <laughs> nobody a year from now, five years from now is going to remember that you lost this match except for you and maybe your mom and dad. Yeah. So it's like, are you getting something out of this experience overall? If so, then it's worth doing whether you, you get your hand raised or you don't. Yeah. And that's good to have, especially when you win too, because right. you think you're like hot stuff. But it's like, nobody's going to remember that. Nobody you cares. Wrote. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like in a week, your uh, friend's going to be worried about like what he's going to get his girlfriend for a date or something. You know what I mean? Like that idea of you being the champ. Um, it's like in the old school Olympics, way back in Greece, they did their what the crowns with like Ivy or whatever it was to symbolize, hey, this is going to be dead soon. Right. You know, like it's not going to be fresh forever, but for the parade, it looked green. It looked beautiful. 
but a few weeks later it's brown because it's like hey so temporary right so so temporary so all that being said but now you're traveling around the state speaking full-time which is a change but how'd you get involved in that oh man it's it's a long story but um the recap is like i'd done a good deal of professional speaking when I was still teaching. Um, didn't coach anything during the spring or during the summer so that I had the opportunity to do that a little bit. And then it, it kind of dovetailed a little bit with uh, Cody Foster over at Advisors Excel, who had this vision for for starting up this nonprofit for mental health and suicide prevention. And we, we had gone out to a few lunches back and forth and I kind of kicked around ideas on what this thing might look like. And uh, he's been the driving force behind making this happen and with his help and uh that Halstead who's also given me a ton of great advice there like we we've been able to accomplish in eight months what it would have taken me eight years to do on my own and this thing has really taken off to the point where we're probably going to need to add some people here we got a board meeting here and or board retreat here in june where we're we're going to get some real clarity on where this thing is going to go because quite frank quite frankly it's taken off quite a bit faster than we thought that it would Wow. So what is the Jones Project? Okay. The Jones Project is is named after a, a pillar here in the Topeka community who died by suicide on March 5th of 2021. And the the catalyst for that, like I, I did not know Josh Jones. Uh, the first time that I, I think we were in the same room together was at his funeral. But that was what he, he worked with my wife at Advisors Excel. And so I went to be supportive for her. But in that, in that moment, just kind of had my moment of clarity that, you know, if, if I didn't make some changes in my life, it wouldn't be long until my family were in the same position. And so we made some of those changes, had to step away from, th- from some things that were very important to me. Um, I, you know, I, I invested a decade of my life into coaching our boys wrestling program. And I was just, I was spread way too thin and putting way too much pressure on myself and, you know, you couple that with the pre-existing, pre-existing mental health conditions that I had going on and it, it wasn't a good recipe. And so, you know, from that point, that's when I started meeting with Cody and, uh, and we kind of pointed the compass in the right direction. And so what it, what the idea behind the Jones project is, is early intervention with secondary students in the state of Kansas. So middle schools and high schools. And so I, I kind of view myself as, as the tip of the spear. And what we decided was, let's use my skill set of the things that I'm fairly good at, which are connecting with kids and being on stage with microphone. And so we started going around and kind of, I view myself as kind of the tip of the spear. Like I'm there to get the kids to realize that, that yes, this is something that's real. This is something that affects the people that are sitting in your row right now that you have no idea because just like me, they got really good at hiding it. And this is something that like you're, you're going to need to address at some point in your life. And the sooner you do it, the better you you will be down the road. Uh, if you're one of those people that struggles with your mental health. And so if you, if you were to go to a school where we've got 2000 students or 20 in a graduating class, the majority of the presentation is going to be the same because the majority of it is, is my story and your story doesn't change. Uh, but then with the other 15 minutes, we try to really highlight the tiers of intervention that they have going on at that school, the processes that a kid that were struggling that needed to get the ball rolling with getting help, what they would go through, because that looks different at every school that we go to. So we collaborate with administration and, and the counseling department at each one of these schools. 
and go out and see how we can be, be best of service. And so, you know, the majority of the time, that's me going, giving an hour presentation, hanging with kids afterwards, whoever wants to hang, and we just stay there. Like I, on, on those days when I do a presentation, I tell them my, or the day that I come visit your school is your day. So you can utilize me however, I, however you would like to. So some days I'll, I'll finish my presentation and two or three kids want to talk afterwards. And some days there's a line out of the auditorium and I'll stay for three, four hours after I get done. It really just depends. Uh, but, but yeah, the, the cool thing about it is with, with Cody's backing and with the backing of all the connections that we've, we've gotten through the Topeka community, through the advisors Excel community. Um, we are a true nonprofit in every sense of the word. We don't charge a penny for what we do. And I think that that's a, I think that's one of the reasons why it's been able to take off so fast is because schools have limited budgets and it's really difficult for them to bring in a, a really high quality paid professional speaker to come talk to their kids. And with what we're doing, everybody can afford free. You know, so this is just a matter of them clearing their schedule, moving some things around a little bit. And, and we've had a really positive response so far. Wow. Yeah. Whenever I learned that you don't charge anyone to come speak there, I was like, no surprise that it's growing so fast. Right. You know what I mean? Because these administrators and these teachers can recognize, I had a high school biology teacher on here whenever it was just starting and he talked about how the hardest part about teaching, it wasn't about getting the content into their heads. It's about whenever the kids show up, he can tell they're bringing all the stuff that they're dealing with at home as well. Mm -hmm. And you can't separate that, right? And if we get so good at separating that, at compartmentalizing it, then we got to deal with it later. You know, just like you said, we get really good at hiding it. And that kind of shoots us in the foot later on. So, you mentioned that you share your story and then you mentioned you talk about tears and intervention. What's the presentation look like? Like, what are you talking about for the most part? Well, it's, I tell kids on the front end, like I give everybody the same standard disclaimer. Uh, I'm not a mental health professional. I'm just a, an old PE teacher that happens to be good with a microphone. When I ask a kid what, what I do for a living, like a lot of times I'll get the answer. Oh, you're a motivational speaker. It's like, I mean, kind of, I'm not really trying to motivate you. What I'm trying to do is make connections with you. Um, my job title, self-titled, I guess, is I'm a storyteller. That's it. And I, I tell stories about myself, the mistakes that I've made, the adventures I've had, and the adventures and interactions I've had with kids I've worked with for the last 20 years. And, and hopefully through these stories, you all can, you can make some kind of connection to your life that will be beneficial for you. And so um, the, the things that we talk about the most, like, we, I, I, again, tell kind of the, the stories that, that illustrate what this looks like for someone who's accomplished a lot of those things that the kids want to accomplish. Like, yeah. so I'm, I'm like, yeah, this, this is what it looks like for the captain of the football team. And this yeah. is what it looks like for that state champ slash division one athlete, whatever. And, the, and, and this is real. And, you know, there's, there's a whole lot that goes into that. And then at the end, we, not the end, but like towards the back half of the presentation, we tell them, that there are essentially three critical steps. And of, of course, there are stories that go along with these. And for a kid in, in that age group, like the things that I think that are most valuable for them to know, critical step number one is understanding that, that if you're struggling with this thing, you're not alone in the way that you feel. Uh, because our, man, our brains can be tricksters because we, we know intellectually that, yeah, of course, other people struggle with this kind of stuff, but like, our, our brains can convince us that, oh no, your situation is so different. There's nobody else that could possibly understand. Mm. And so we try to illustrate to kids that you're not alone in the way that you feel. 
And then the the second key point that we try to get them to understand is that you're not alone. I didn't tell my wife about this thing for the first 16 years that we were married. Uh, because again, like most people in my situation, we we get pretty good at hiding it. And I had a kid once, and man, there's no way that you could have kept that a secret from your wife, the person you love, the person you live with. And it's like, man, that's baloney. Okay, because like we people in our situation, we get really, really good at reading other people's social cues. We know what they want to hear, what they don't want to hear, and we get really good at hiding it. And I tell tell all my audiences that the only thing that I regret out of this whole entire process, because even the really down or dark time, like I learned a lot from that. But my only regret was that I didn't tell Lindsay sooner because she was right there, ready to help me out. She's been the most supportive and loving person in my entire life. And the only reason that I regret not telling her sooner is because I don't think that I was as good of a husband or as good of a father as I could have been had I told her about this thing 15 years earlier, you know, and we could have addressed some of these issues. So uh, the, the first critical step we tell them is you're not alone the way you feel. The second one is you're not alone in the fight. And the third one is tell them not understanding, but knowing that things can and will get better, but you got to put in the work. Like the, the, anything that's worth having in your life takes work and being mentally healthy is worth the work. And it's, it's one of those things where I, I tell, I tell them and I, it, this is just my own personal opinion, but I, I refuse to tell kids the, the old standby phrase of it's okay to not be okay. Cause I don't believe that. Uh, and I know that's probably a, a dissenting opinion, but at the same time, it's like, of course there are elements to that that are true. Of course it's okay to not be okay, but we can't be okay with sitting there. We got to find a way to get to a place where we are okay. And then we start talking about different tools that they can use and how you need to take a multi-pronged approach. There's, there's not a magic pill that's going to all of a sudden make you better. Like that can be a part that can be one of your tools, but like putting in work doesn't mean you go get a prescription. Putting in work means that you, you develop what I call a healthy obsession with getting better. Because if, if you're really struggling with your mental health, there is nothing else in your life that's more important than getting that in the right place. And, and so, yeah, it's just, that you're not alone the way you feel, you're not alone in the fight, and there's hope, and things can and will get better, but you got to put in the work. Now I want to go to a presentation. <laughs> you're welcome anytime, yeah. man. Come on in. I'll, I'll join your crew, and I'll just run to the crowd and sit down in the back. Do it. We have visitors yeah. all the time. We'd love to have you. Okay, cool. We'll set that up. You had mentioned 16 years ago, your, you wish you, had a, you would have shared with your wife 16 years early now, was there a breakthrough moment? What was that breakthrough moment where you finally did share with her? It was after Josh's funeral. Yeah. Uh, when I just, again, had kind of that moment of clarity where it was like, I've, I've kind of hinted at it for a while um, from probably 2018 to 2021 and tried to handle it all on my own and realized eventually one, at Josh's funeral that it was like, this is something that I can't handle on my own. Yeah. Uh, I, I need to enlist help of other people and I need to, take the coaching that I give to, to my athletes. I need to take it myself, which sometimes that's a tough thing for coaches to do. But uh, I found that, you know, a lot of the advice that I give them is pretty useful if I would put it to work for myself. And is that why? Uh, yeah, it is. And it's, it, I don't want to say it was a do as I say, not as I do situation, but at the same time, there's, there are some things that I should have been doing that I told my athletes to do quite a bit, you know? So, I was, I was very glad that I finally got to, I, I mean, I hate how we had to get there, but at the same time, very happy. I was finally humble enough to take some of my own advice and, and put it into play. So what were you dealing with? Uh, just a, 
a lot of uh, imposter syndrome type stuff uh, that that was crushing at times. A lot of we'll stay up and work till three in the morning because if I don't get this one thing done, then these people are going to be upset with me and then they're probably going to be upset with me anyway. And just uh, substance abuse issues, things like that. They're kind of all, if you look at warning signs on, on a website, then I, I checked a lot of those boxes, you know? And so there, it was a, a long process, but, uh, but we're definitely taking steps in the right direction. Like it's, yeah. it's one of those things. Like I, I tell kids, if you're really struggling with mental health issues, it's, it's kind of like a, a boxing match and a boxing match that you can't win. And, but you can defend yourself. So in this boxing match that you can't win, but you can defend yourself. Like you, if you keep putting in the work, you become a better and better boxer and you can knock this thing to the mat for an eight count. And it's always going to get back up again eventually. But you know, maybe his knees are a little wobbler and then you can, you can unload on it again and knock it back down, you know? So it's, it's going to pop up here and there. They're going to be trigger moments for you, but you know, as long as you put in the work and you've, you've given yourself strategies and supportive people around you to help you when that thing pops back up, then it becomes easier and easier to knock it back down again. Yeah. Dang. That's such a good analogy because despite how socially connected we are or healthy we are or physically fit or great at being vulnerable there are still disasters where all of a sudden everything that you had in order hits the chaotic yeah. frenzy now you mentioned the dark times and the dark moments what were those like for you gosh man uh that's really tough we in in 2018 we had a a particularly difficult wrestling season and like this was one of those where we we went into the wrestling state championship finals and we had seven kids that were wrestling metal matches and all seven of them won. We went seven and zero, including three state champions. And like that just doesn't happen. And so it's like, Oh my gosh, we're actually going to win state. This would have been the first one. And keep in mind seven years earlier, we finished last in the state. So like we had this, this meteoric turnaround and it was going to be, it was, I shouldn't say meteoric. It was more like turning around an aircraft carrier, which takes time, you know, uh, but it was finally like that moment where it's like, we're, we're going to win a state championship. And like all this work was worth it. There was another school that had four kids in the finals and that was it. And the only way that they could have beaten us was if all four of those kids won by pin in the finals, which doesn't happen. Guess what happened next? <laughs> yeah. All, a lot of pin. All, yeah. All four of them won by fall and we ended up losing state by a point and a half. So out of a, a two day tournament, this was uh, the the analogy I give people is imagine you're on a football team that's behind by two with two seconds left on the clock and you try to kick a 60 yard field goal to win it and it doinks off the upright like that's how close we were to winning the state title and it was like this was absolutely the best team that I ever had we graduated a bunch of seniors and like it was just that crushing realization. And this is back before we had won any state championship. So, you know, I was still in that mode of chasing trophies, like all coaches, I think, go through at some point. And it was just like that moment of this was the best team that we're ever going to have. And even with this best team, we're never going to win it. And so this past decade worth of work was, you know, start telling yourself all the nonsense, like, it, it wasn't worth it and you're a failure and all this kind of stuff. I didn't get out of bed for God, I don't know, five days, something like that. And it got to the point where my wife was like, Hey, you got to get your butt out of bed, go back to work. 
and like pull yourself together here, you know? Uh, and so like those were, when you ask about, you know, what did the dark times look like? A lot of times it was that kind of stuff. Um, but a lot of wait until everybody else goes to bed and then like just kind of have my own little freak out moments. You know, I was good at punting it down the road until, uh, I was by myself and right. can do it. My, you know, I, and it, it's honestly, it's tough to remember sometimes because it's, that's kind of stuff that you block out, you yeah. know, but it's that self presentation. We want to present ourselves, particularly with athletics and coaching and leadership, right. you know, like you got to be the guy who's unshakable. You have to be the one who, despite the biggest opposition and the most strenuous adversity, he never faltered, you right. know, and you hear that and you want to be that person, but when you get down to it and you take a big fat L, you're like, man, it's like that. It don't matter how hard you get hit. It's if you get back up. Again. Exactly. <laughs> you yeah. Know what and I mean? it's, and it, it's funny, man. Cause I, I go around and I speak in all these schools and usually the, the, the teachers and the staff, they're in there also. And I have, I don't think there's been a school I've been to yet where I haven't had a, some coach come up to me and be like, thank you. I needed to hear that. Oh, uh, because I think we all go through that where we think we have to put up this, yeah. this for public facing facade of this impeccable human being. And it's now that I've, I don't do that anymore. I'm an infinitely better coach. I have better connections with my kids and just because I think that that vulnerability builds trust. And when, when kids understand that like, yeah, you're going to forget things as coach, you're going to, uh, you're going to make mistakes, you know, and, and you're a human being, then they're a lot more likely to open up with you about the mistakes that they've made and, and things that they're worried about, things of that nature. So yeah, it's, if, if I had, uh, if I had any advice to give coaches out there, it would be stop being fake, man. Like talk to your kids like they're human beings, act like, act like you're not perfect and let them see the human side of you. And when they do that, or when you do that, then man, possibilities are endless with kids. Yeah. Quit being fake. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which we all do uh, to some degree, but like I think coaches probably do it more than most humans, you know, and maybe other people in position of leadership do too. But how do you deal with weight management and weight cutting? It's uh, I take a different approach. Um, when I when I first started at Washburn Rural, we uh, again we we weren't very good at that time. Uh, we had, or I should just at least say, we had some work to do. Uh, and so my approach was we're not going to out athlete anybody right now. And so what we need to do is we need to train completely differently, take a different approach on pretty much everything, because if we're teaching different techniques that other people are using, then they're not drilling against those things every day. And we got a chance at those working. If my team shoots double eggs, his team shoots double eggs. That team has been doing it for longer is going to be better at it. You know? So we had to come up with some unique things. One of those was our weight management. Um, I I've taken a different approach than a lot of coaches. And I tell kids like, I'm not going to tell you what weight class you need to go to. I will give you my objective opinion and I will lay out all the facts and then you make the choice. And that's one of the beauty, beautiful things about our sport is I don't have to pick out a starting lineup. The kids determine it because they just challenge each other for the varsity spots. And sometimes there's some feelings that get hurt a little bit because if a kid drops down and, and takes somebody else's spot away that was a senior, then that's not good for the senior, you know, but, but at the same time, it's, that's the nature of the beast. And so, you know, I've always told kids, you're going to choose your weight class. And if you choose one that is significantly lower than what you weigh right now, you're going to need my approval to do that. I know a lot of places out there, they've got kids that 
that suck a ton of weight. And it's just, I, I did that when I was in high school and it is not fun and it doesn't make it an enjoyable experience. And so I would rather not bring home a trophy from state and have my kids enjoy the experience than have Susie cut to this weight class and Sally cut to that weight class. And plus, like, I find that I think kids wrestle better when they've got gas in the tank and yeah. they they didn't spend the whole night previous in the sauna. And so, especially on the girl side, man, like there's, cause there's certain times of the month where they're going to retain more water than other times. And if you're wrestling at your natural weight and you don't have to worry about, you know, sucking off some of that water weight at the last minute, then that makes that whole process a lot easier. Um, and again, more enjoyable. So, you know, we might have one or two that lose, you know, a pound, two pounds, whatever throughout the year, which is not a big deal. That's one hard practice, but it's, it's very rare when we have someone that's like, all right, coach, I'm going to go down 20 pounds from where I started the year. Yeah. Um, and sometimes they, they tell me that and I don't No, you're not, that's not going to happen because it's not safe for you. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see that? Like you did it whenever you were younger, big weight cuts. And did you have a like negative relationship with food or was there any no, lasting impact? None whatsoever. Yeah. Um, it's in fact, it was a beneficial thing. I was talking with my, my younger brother, um, Olin Parker, who was also a wrestler for Manhattan high school back in the day. And he, he did a, a much bigger weight cut than I did. I remember asking him like, was it worth it? Would you do it again? And he was like, I hated every second of it. And I can attest to this, everything he said. He was like, I hated every second of it. But at the same time, it taught me what I was capable of. And now he runs ultra marathons and he's a like freak right. athlete. Endurance but, athlete. Yeah. But, and, and I would agree with that assessment. Like it, it did not give me any kind of negative um, association with food or anything like that. But yeah. what it did was taught me how to keep things under control. And so, you know, you won't find me in a sauna anymore or anything like that, or wearing a plastic suit or any of those crazy things we did back in the nineties. But, um, but but I, I can feel myself when I'm getting a little bit uh, on on the soft side and I can get back into the gym and I take care of what I need to take care of, make adjustments to the diet, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's, that's another common misconception with our sport is, and I hear it from parents. It's like, I, I know this one gal from a PE class. I try to recruit her to, to wrestle and she said, Oh, my mom won't let me because she doesn't want me to develop an eating disorder. Yeah. What we found is it's quite the opposite. We've got girls that had no idea how to manage their diet. They're eating absolute garbage. They come into our program and realize kind of how this thing works. And like, we've had girls completely transform their bodies. Had a girl that came to us that, uh, weighed 254 pounds on her, uh, her initial weigh in with us, her junior year. And now she's wrestling in college at 167. And she, she doesn't, she's not doing any kind of crash diet nonsense or anything like that. She just learned healthy ways to eat. And I think just got tired of being a bigger person. And uh, you see her now and she looks phenomenal. And it's like, she did that all on her own, just with the, uh, in, in a four year process, you know, she lost a human being and it's, it's just by, you know, developing a positive relationship with food, re realizing that it's fuel and not a coping mechanism, which that's something that I still struggle with every once in a while. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the takeaway there is it sounds like it gives them that nutritional competency of like knowing nutrition wise, energy wise, there's only so much we can get. That's a bang for our buck. I love chips. I love salty right. things, but I also have a sweet tooth. So my goal has been to bulk up, right? Yet I can't really do that unless I'm consistently cleanly eating and being intentional about everything I'm putting into the tank. And I know that with athletics, you know, we have to double down. So that's good that you talk about that because I've heard that same thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we, I mean, all of the girls that come into our program for the most part are going to lose some weight. Reason being like you go from, 
you know, your normal existence to now all of a sudden burning a thousand, fifteen hundred more calories per day at yeah. practice. Like you're going to lose some weight naturally, but, uh, but yet we, we just absolutely don't encourage the, the old school vision quest type, like nonsense that the people used to do like when we didn't know any better. Yeah. It was women's wrestling growing. It's, it's the fastest growing sport, uh, regardless of gender, regardless of season in the United States. Wow. It's exploding. Yeah. Our participation numbers in Kansas have increased 600% since the first year. Why is that? Just because girls are realizing that it's such an empowering sport and, and it's so entertaining. Like girls wrestling is probably more entertaining than boys at this point. Cause it's more high flying and like boys, you get two guys that have been doing it since they were four years old. And a lot of times you're not going to see a lot of scoring in that match because they're kind of cat and mouse game. But with girls, they let it rip, man. And, and it's very, very fun to watch. And so I think our girls are realizing that, Hey, well, like we can do this thing too. And I think that was the biggest, the biggest change for us. And this is other advice that I give to other coaches as well. Like when, for the first eight years that I coached boys wrestling, but girls were allowed to wrestle if they wanted to, I could probably count on one hand, the amount of girls that came and wrestled for us. But the second I, I split it and it got approved to have girls stand alone. It was like, all right, we're not going to do what most schools are going to do. I think most schools do is they kind of open the door and like, Hey, if any girls want to wrestle, come on in, Totally, you know? And yeah. then they're like, but they don't really invest in it with our girls. It was like, all right, we're going to have a different practice time, a different coaching staff, different uniforms, different logo. This is your team. And once we, we told them it was like a thing of their own, then they just started flooding in because it was something that they obviously wanted to do. And then once word gets out, they're like, Hey, this is awesome. You guys should try that. Like not just at our school, but all over the place. Like it's just blowing up. And it's, it is so cool to see around the state now. Like we tried to be pioneers in having our a standalone girls coaching staff. And now you're seeing that everywhere, uh, which we knew was inevitable uh, because this thing is going to continue to grow. And girls wrestling will save boys wrestling because boys wrestling numbers nationwide were dwindling and, like I saw it as an opportunity to play the long game because if you go into our kids club room, most of those kids that are in there, the boys, their dads wrestle like dads just get their kids involved in the sport because they see what it gave to them. Um, but moms didn't moms were the ones that didn't want their kids to wrestle because they didn't want their babies to get hurt. But now if I can bring 60 girls into our room every year, teach them to develop a love for the sport, their kids are going to wrestle their boys and their girls. And, you know, selfishly, if half of those girls on our team end up in the Topeka community and some of them end up in Southwest Topeka, like I'll get to coach their kids someday. And so we're trying to play the long game, but I think that's, that's how girls wrestling is going to save guys. In fact, that all of these girls out here that are loving this thing are now going to eagerly get both their sons and daughters eventually into the sport rather than not wanting them to participate down the road. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, they're saving the sport, man. It's, it's really cool to see. I had not expected that. Is there university programs? Absolutely. Yeah. There, um, there are so many out there. It's like as part of the, the national wrestling coach association, we get, you know, weekly updates or whatever. And every week I get an update on a new school that's adding a girls wrestling program. It's, uh, women's wrestling is saving Olympic sports at the collegiate level as well. Because back in the nineties, when, uh, title nine stuff started really popping off. These school administrators were to meet proportionality. What they were doing was they were cutting men's Olympic programs that were non-revenue generating sports. And then all of a sudden, like early two thousands, 
I don't know who started the trend, but some genius administrator was like, wait a minute, we've already got a wrestling room. We've already got wrestling mats. We can get more people enrolled in our school. If we start up this girls wrestling program, um, all we got to do really is buy uniforms and find a coach. And so it kind of started spiraling there and now it's just blown up. We, uh, that I tell girls like there are very few guarantees in life, but one of the guarantees that I can make you with this sport, like I can't guarantee you're going to win a state championship. I can guarantee if you come to me and you wrestle for, for two, three, four years and, and you have, you do all the things that we ask you to do and you get the grades. I guarantee you, I can pick up the phone and find you a scholarship whenever you tell me to pick up the phone Uh, because there are just that many spots out there. And like, I didn't say anything about, they have to wrestle a, a varsity match for me. Like we've had several girls that have gone on and wrestled on scholarship in college that never wrestled a significant varsity match for no us way. just because they're adding schools or school wrestling programs in college. at such a rate that they're having a hard time in some spot, some instances filling up those, those rosters. Wow. And so that's going to change here in the next couple of years. Sure, but, it's uh, catch up. Yeah. But, but as of right now, like anybody that wants to commit to the sport, commit to their academics, I can commit to them that I'll find them a scholarship to do so in college. So how does it feel to be someone who is a coach who you figured some of the stuff out, you wrestled yourself, you did boys wrestling, but you're a coach who's positioned to also be in the heyday of women's wrestling. It's pretty cool, man. It's like I said, it's, one of one of the things I really enjoy is being on the front end of something or being the first to do. And it seems like every year those opportunities to do something for the first time are becoming fewer and fewer. And that's a good thing because that means that this thing is growing and other people are being innovative and coming up with, with new ideas. But it's, it, it's something that I take a lot of pride in that, that my family was kind of on the front end of it. And people call us when they have questions and, and we're trying to grow the sport, not just within our community, but, and not just statewide, but nationwide. Like we've counseled a lot of schools. Like the last one was in New York that uh, just kind of called me randomly out of the blue and was like, Hey, can you help us get this thing rolling? It's like, yeah, let's do this, man. Yeah. So. And it's cool because I'm learning right now. And one of the things I say to myself is anytime I'm learning, then everybody else who's listening is also learning. Absolutely. So thinking about all of the people who listen to this and hear how it's growing, you know, the sport that people are always talking about, fastest growing sport is pickleball yeah it's blowing up man (laughs) love me some pickleball (laughs) me too so it's like women's wrestling and pickleball are two of the fastest growing sports but the unique thing about women's wrestling is that there's scholarships there yeah and people love scholarships they should because school is bonkers expensive right now but i don't think there's any pickleball scholarships out there not yet hopefully i love love pickleball yeah. Have you been playing? Uh, no, I haven't. But when I was teaching PE, like, I didn't even know pickleball existed. <laughs> Look up, like I was just trying to come up with some ideas for what to do with my class. And there's, I found a video on pickleball. I was like, wait a minute, this looks pretty cool. We start playing it. And after a couple of years, uh, I got pretty good at it because I was teaching six hours of PE a day. So I was just playing pickleball all day. And then uh, I started looking at pickleball national championships and I was like, wait a minute, everybody on the court right now is 74 years old. Like I can smoke these people. So I think there was like a, a 18 month window where I might've been in like the top 10 pickleball players on the planet. And then like uh, last year we went to, to Los Angeles for a football game and uh, they on Venice beach, they had all these pickleball courts. I was like, I wouldn't even be in the top 100 people that are at this beach yeah, right now. Like that's right. how much that thing's exploded. It has exploded. I was playing in Phoenix and a guy showed up who was a professional pickleball player 
and he was lights out. It was so impressive. But yeah. the growth of that sport and the growth of women's wrestling is inspiring. And yeah, get involved in women's wrestling. Holy cow. Like hearing you particularly talk about scholarships, because I know whenever I was coming up, I couldn't afford school. So it was like, I need to find scholarships. Right. And that is a great way to do it, but also a great way to learn work ethic. For sure. One of the things you had mentioned was whenever you're speaking to the kids at schools, you share with them how there's not one magic pill. And I think that's really important. I've been reading this book, Depression Cure, by Professor Dr. Olardi at KU. And he outlines a six-step or six-part system. And I could list all the six parts if I remember them, but it's like exercise, sunlight exposure, social connectedness, making sure you're a part of a great community, having heat does like omega-3, something like that, but nutrition, um, mental engagement. And then there's one other thing. But all to say that there's a lot of different ways that our mental health could be improved, but also that it could be um, like damaged. You know what I mean? Like a lot of ways that we have to keep watch. So what are those changes or what are some changes that you are encouraging kids to adopt to and to bring into their life? Oh man, there's, there's a lot that we go over in an hour, but um, the, the main thing is, we tell them the two most important tools they have are their people and their trusted adult. Uh, their, their people are not like their friend group. Their people are not the people that are in their fourth hour. The people are the people that they get together with outside of the school day and work towards a common goal. Cause I think that that's a really important piece of it because yeah, you get your friends, but like as a friendship group, you're really not working towards something. Uh, so having your people is super important. And then the other thing would be, uh, your trusted adult. Uh, and I have them all at the beginning. Long story short, I give them three seconds. Like just, I want your gut reaction. Do you, yes or no, do you have a deep, dark secret? You know, and I was like, don't tell me what the answer is, but give me a thumbs up or thumbs up. Do They're you like have yelling it out. Yeah. Well, and some of them are like, uh, uh, I don't think that I <laughs> right, do. It's right. like, yes, you do. Yeah. Yes, you do. We all do. Yeah, and yeah, sometimes yeah. they're good secrets, but we all have something, you know? Um, and I, I tell them then at the end of the presentation, it's like when we're talking about trusted adults, it's like, now the next question is, do you have an adult in this building? Doesn't have to be a teacher. It could be a counselor, cafeteria worker, custodian, coach, sponsor, whatever. Do you have someone in this building that if push came to shove, you would feel comfortable telling that secret to, or at least you could make yourself tell that secret to. And if the answer to that is no, you got to find one. And the way you find one is by finding your people. Because when you find an, an organization that you like being a part of, whether that's you know dance or band or forensics or theater or sport, then usually a big part of you enjoying being a part of that group is the leadership of that group. So then you developed a relationship with a, a trusted adult. Uh, and then if, if push comes to shove and you got nobody that you could tell about that, then that's probably when we want to talk to our, our school counselors, you know? Um, so those are, those are the two things that I tell them that are the most important. Uh, and then if we go a little further on that, uh, there's a guy named Hal Elrod who, who wrote a book called the miracle morning. And there are, we all read books that are, that are good. We read some that are so good that if, uh, if you really enjoyed it, you'll tell some people about it. Right. But if you're, if you're fortunate enough 
you'll read one or two books in your life that'll like really change your life. Like that'll change who you are as a person, the way you go about your daily business. And, and in Hal Elrod's book, the, the Miracle Morning was one of those. Uh, because in that book, he highlights just a short series of things that he packages in a way to where, like, if you do these six things in the morning, like, it's pretty dang tough to have a bad day. Uh, and he calls it the savers. He's got like silence, affirmation, visualization, exercise, uh, reading and scribing or writing in a journal. And, you know, if you go through and you spend, you don't have to spend an exceptional amount of time on that, but you spend 10 minutes on each one of those things. It's really, really hard to find yourself in a dark place when you've done all of those things in the morning. Uh, and of course, like it's not limited to 10 minutes. I'll do my, my, seven minute workout in the morning that fits in that 10 minute thing. And then I'll go to the gym later, you know, or I'll write more later or whatever's important to me. But, uh, you know, it's, it's just a really unique way that they've, they've packaged that. And then you look in all these different books are about the, that are about the, the habits of highly effective people. And there's some, or high achieving people, there's some structure that involves most of those things. So tell me the six again. Okay. It's silence. Uh Okay. So like doing some sort of meditation or, or mindfulness practice, Uh there's affirmations. So positive Uh self-talk, uh, there's visualization, which is like, you know, looking at what you want out of your life in not just the long term, but like today, like what, how do I visualize today going? Um, then you've got your exercise. So that could be something as simple as a seven minute workout app on your phone or, you know, doing a hundred pushups in 10 minutes or however you want to do it. Um, then there's reading. And what I tell kids, man, it's, it's very simple. Smart people read and dumb people don't. So be a smart person. Like you need to pick up a book and, and not like scroll through articles on your phone, like pick up a physical actual book. Uh, and then the last one is scribing or journaling, like putting your thoughts down on paper. And I encourage kids to the first thing you should do in the morning. Uh, like I, you don't have to follow them in this order. Uh, if I did my, my silent stuff first, I would probably fall back asleep, you know, yeah. but, um, the, the, the journaling part is what I always do first. I think the first thing you should do in the morning is write something that you're grateful for. Uh, I think that just kind of sets your, your mindset for the day. And so again, you do, you do those things and you're just kind of setting the table for having a really good day. And I don't do it every single day, but most days I do. And the days that I do are definitely better than the days that I don't. Uh, but yeah, I think the, the important thing about this though, that I think everyone could implement, uh, whether you do it in this order, you pick and choose pieces from other good books out there. Um, the morning thing is important. I think that there's some commonalities between people that have accomplished great things. And I think the majority of them have a good morning routine. Uh, reason being, like, if you, if you just kind of fly by the seat of your pants and all of a sudden you look at the clock and it's like, oh, it's 830 at night. What, what did I do today? Yeah. You know? Uh, but the other thing that I tell, like, adults, kids, everybody is your bedtime should be sacred time. Okay, your, your bed should only be used for sleep. And if you have a phone next to your bed, like I always ask it, like kid will tell me they're struggling with something. It's like, okay, what time you go to bed? Uh, I don't know. You, well, okay, we need to get real clear on that. What time do you go to bed? Like, next time I ask you, you should say 8.30 or 9.30. Like on the dot, you know what time that is. And that doesn't mean what time do you get in bed. That means what time do you go to bed? And it's like one little change that would change everybody's life is if instead of plugging that phone in right next to your bed, you plug it in across the room. Yep. Okay, you'll never oversleep an alarm again because if you do that, then you're not laying in bed and scrolling through TikTok or Instagram until one in the morning. Uh, and then when that alarm goes off, 
you're not going to get up out of bed, walk across the room just to hit the snooze button and walk back and repeat that process nine minutes later. So it's like, once you're up, you're up. And so, you know, they make that change. Then all of a sudden the bed becomes for sleep and not for scrolling. Then all of a sudden it makes it easier to get up and do that, that morning routine every day. And that will have a tremendous impact on your life. If you just make those little bitty changes. Now, uh, you know, you do six things, 10 minutes at a time. People are like, oh, coach, I can get up an hour earlier than I do already. Yes, you can. What were you doing productive between 10 o'clock PM and midnight last night? Right. I mean, that's Netflix time. Right. That's scroll through Insta time, yeah. you know, and you, you plug that phone in, you go to bed at eight 30. If you have to wake up at four to get your hour in, cool. You still got more sleep than just about any human that you know. So it's, it's not about getting up super early and like, putting forth that facade of look how hard I work. I get up. So no, it's because your sleep is important for this thing too. Right. It's just about making a little bit of a time shift, go to bed a little bit earlier so that you can wake up a little bit earlier and then you can accomplish before 6am what the vast majority of people don't accomplish in an entire day. Yeah. That's great. That morning routine. And I'm glad that you mentioned the, it's not about bragging about waking up at 4am because I know that sometimes we associate rise and grind with the, lack of sleep but it's like that's going to catch up to you you know oh, for sure yeah if you don't have sleep then you are going to be a shell of yourself and i have been have you been reading atomic habits did you read that i have book? read that one yeah james yeah. clear yeah. yeah and he talks about how in vietnam there were a lot of soldiers addicted to heroin mm-hmm. and they came home and five percent of them or 95 percent of them dropped the habit drop the addiction they're like what the heck i thought addiction was this really unbeatable thing and the people who had it just lacked self-determination and discipline and they just weren't the best people but it turns out that once they got back home they weren't around war they weren't around other people doing heroin they weren't away from their family and they had their loved ones all next to them and they didn't do heroin and it's like that environment how so much of it affects your life and then he the book transitions to how we cue ourselves with the environment. So like you said, instead of your bed being a place for scrolling, now you make it a place for sleeping. Right. right? And I've been thinking that same exact thing. So I got one of those alarm clocks that has on the top of it, a light panel and on the bottom of it, it has a little clock and the light panel mimics the sunrise. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. It starts off uh, like, light and then as it goes it goes brighter and brighter and brighter and the goal is that your room starts to fill with light but i've been leaving my phone out here like on this table and then i have a place where i'll read in the morning and i sit in that chair whenever i read and then i sit in a different chair when i eat and i sit in a different chair when i'm on social media (laughs) so it's like i don't have a lot of space in here you know like you've seen my house but what i do have is the ability to associate behaviors with places even if it's chairs and that's like cueing myself that's really smart you know what i'm still in that one yeah (laughs) you're gonna have to buy some chairs yeah you have all these chairs in your house what do you think about night routines i i honestly i don't put a lot of uh, probably as much effort into that as as i probably should Mm -hmm. um but one thing i do try to do is you know, you try to win the evening so that you can win the morning. So oh, I was like, I'm a coffee nice. coffee guy. I have to have my coffee in the morning. So, you know, I, I set my coffee pot so it'll start to brew 
15 minutes before I wake up. So it's warm and ready and waiting for me. And on the days that I forget to push the button and then like I wake up in the morning, Oh, you know, like, and it just kind of starts the day off as a bummer. If, if I know I've got a long run in that morning or training session or whatever, I'll, I'll set out my clothes the night before so that I, I try to make it as easy as possible to do the hard things. If that makes sense. Um, because right now if I'm training for an event coming up and so, uh, my nighttime training looks looks different just about every day. So, you know, there will be some nights when I have to go out on a midnight run and then some nights I'm done with everything by eight. So it's it's a lot tougher to set an evening routine for me with where I am in my life right now than it is to set a morning routine. But just try to take care of the important things at night that I really need to take care of so that I can have a successful morning the next day. Yeah, totally. So find your person, find your people, and then be thinking about starting your morning off with structure. That way you can own your morning and more than likely greatly improve the rest of the day. So those are two really good thumbnails or two really good structures that these kids can use to improve the quality of their life. What are some of the stories that you've heard from these kids? Man, it's that, that was one of the tricky things going into this because I've always been at least in my past life, a very tangible goal driven person. Like by this date, I want to accomplish this and I'll have this data that can back up the fact of whether or not we accomplish it. And that that's been very successful for me throughout my life, but then get into this thing and there's really no way to quantify whether we're making a difference or not. You know, five years from now, when we look at suicide data around the state of Kansas, we might have an idea because we can kind of break it down by county and see, but like, it's really tough to see like any kind of tangible data out of this. And one, I've kind of had to do a, a mindset shift here because I found through this process that like some of the best data that you get doesn't come from numbers. It comes from people and, and from their lived experience and what they share with you. And we try to be really intentional about letting our, our so, or letting kids reach us through social media. And so, you know, I get tons of messages from kids and, you know, most of them are relatively innocuous, but uh, thanks for coming, that kind of thing. But like, a lot of times we'll get one that was like, man, that, that was the kick in the pants that I needed. And I was like, okay, well, where's that kick going to take you? And because the kids now are, are not as comfortable always with face-to-face conversations or with phone conversations, but they'll tell you whatever they want to tell you over a direct message through Instagram. And so it's like, okay, well, where's that kick in the pants taking? And like, well, I just finished up an appointment with my counselor and I've, and she hooked me up with a mental health liaison so I can go see someone at, at an actual therapist's office. And it's like, wow, okay, this is working, you know? And, and we've had some kids that have, have sent us some, some messages that, that made us realize that what we're doing is worthwhile and, and that sometimes kids just need to know that there's someone else out there that's been through this thing that, that will have their back even after he leaves the stage, you know? And, and I think that that's been uh, probably the most rewarding thing about this whole situation. Yeah. Is those DMS. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. And thankfully like, we get so many of them. I have a, a, an assistant who lives in the Philippines. Hi Mary, if you're watching, but, um, but she's awesome. She goes through and like helps me sort through the ones that like, it's like, okay, this is one that you need to get back to today. And yeah. this is one that we can probably table for a minute, you know, but we end up getting back to everybody. And right. you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a weird thing. Cause it's like, I going into this job and like knowing that I was going to be traveling all over the state, spending one to four hours in a school and then essentially not going back there probably for years. 
I was like, am I going to lose that relationship piece that was so important to me when I was teaching in the same building for 12 years? No, we haven't because, and, and it's kind of transitions It's a different kind of relationship, but like I've, there are kids that we went and talked to in August that I'm still, you know, sending messages back and forth with periodically or talking to on the phone every once in a while. And that's, uh, it, it's really cool to be able to spread that reach around and, and make connections with kids all over the state instead of just in one part of the town. Yeah. That, that makes sense that you would have missed the relational aspect because I know that in teaching oftentimes content delivery is one thing, but being able to see the kids grow is the most rewarding thing. For sure. Yeah. Now you do something that a lot of people are very scared of public speaking. Have you always been naturally inclined to public speaking? No, I haven't. Um, I spent the first, I think, nine years of my teaching career as a kindergarten teacher, uh, partly because of that. You know, like kindergarten kids are going to love you no matter how bad you are. Yeah, if you you're know? saying ums or yeah. yeah or, I, I didn't have to be in front of adults except for at parent-teacher conferences and like at the meet the teacher night, which I used to just, oh man, I would get flush red and just pouring sweat when I'd have to stand up in front of these parents and tell them about like what we're going to do in kindergarten that year. Like I think one parent one time thought that I was having a heart attack or something. He was like, are you okay? I was like, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, I think like, it's just like anything, the more at bats you get, the better you get at it. And the, the less you get nervous, um, or, or stage fright or whatever. And the, the other half of that is like, I'm a natural introvert and people, People, whatever I tell them that say, man, like you're not an introvert. Like you go on stage for a living. And it's like, yeah, but when I'm on stage, I'm the one holding the microphone. I'm the one in charge of the direction of the conversation. And nobody expects me to remember the names of the 1500 people in the audience. Uh, when it's a one on one on one, or if I go to a, a work function where there's, you know, a bunch of people there that I kind of know I might have met before. That's tough. I, yeah. that's not my wheelhouse, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's one of those things like people, People have asked me that before. Like, it's like, oh, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a social studies teacher. Okay, you, you're in public speaking. You stand in front of the hardest audience that exists, high school kids, every single day, and you give a speech on Kansas history or whatever, you know? So it's, I think a lot more of us do the public speaking thing than we realize. Yeah, right. And a lot of, I have someone who I know pretty well. She's a phenomenal public speaker, but she's like, oh, I'm just talking to whatever audience, you know? And, like, oh, I'm talking to kids or, oh, I'm talking to older people or, oh, I'm talking to people who have to listen to me because I'm their manager. But the truth is you're getting your reps in and the more you're in front of a group of people, then more than likely, the better you're going to get. Now, do you still have a lot of nerves before you start? I don't. Um, there, there might be certain situations, but, um, you know, it's one of those things where you, you do it enough times and it, it just becomes second nature to you. Now, yeah. um, there's... I'm going to be speaking at Washburn Rural here May 11th and May 12th. And to be completely honest, man, like you, you throw me out of midfield at Arrowhead and hand me a microphone, I'm fine talking out there. You know, that's no, no big deal. But now I have to go tell my story to a bunch of kids that I really, really care about that have never heard it before. Yep. And I'll be real, that makes me nervous. That's hard. You know, it is. Uh, because I know that there are going to be some kids there that I have a great relationship that are going to walk out and be like, wow, I had no idea, you yeah. know? Right. Uh, and that's going to be... Uh, a tricky thing, but you know, we've, I've always preached an honesty first policy and like, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to admit anything that I wouldn't tell someone at a, a school that is on the other side of the state just because I know these kids. So we're going to be real with them and, and tell them about our shared experience.
It's like that when you're on an airplane, sometimes people spill their guts because they're like, I'm never going to see you again. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and like, even though they can DM you and stuff, there's still part of that, like, we're not managing a relationship. So right. it's always like protecting yourself and sharing what you want to share. Now, you mentioned speaking at Arrowhead. Have you wanted to like, not have you wanted, have you spoken at a venue kind of that large? No, not that big. Um, the, and I really don't have the desire to, it's yeah. not this, not at this point. Like, I think that would pull us away from the mission. Like I still do a few things per year that, that aren't related to the Jones project, but because we, we essentially have to follow the, the schedule of the schools, right? So we've got a couple months off there in the summer that I can use for content development and doing outside engagements, things like that. But, um, you know, right now we're just kind of laser focused on what we're doing here. And, uh, you know, I've had some larger audiences before, but, uh, nothing to the, to the scale of Arrowhead or anything right. like that. But, um, but right now we're just, we're focused on, you know, everything within the, the borders of, of Kansas. And your mission to reach Kansas, it makes a lot more sense, particularly with the content that you have to speak to smaller audiences. Yeah. And to be laser focused that way, because, the more people you get, the more likely that the content you are delivering to them and sharing to them is going to get lost because there's so much noise, you know, and they talk about that. There's the communication model and there's the sender and the receiver. And in between the two, there's noise. And the noise is, if you're at Arrowhead, the noise is that person in front of you who hasn't shaved or showered in 98 days and you're like what the heck is that smell and the right. noise is the person above you who is drunk and the person below you who has a flag and there's so much noise so listening to somebody talk gets harder the bigger the venue um now i am thinking about one thing and maybe you don't have anything off the top but do you have like embarrassing moments public speaking like a moment, like a faux pas or something. Cause I've had some moments where I've been like, Oh man. Yeah. There, there was one, I don't know about embarrassing, but, um, you know, tech issues. Yeah. Right? That's been a strange thing. Cause you know, like sometimes we're in a, a high school that's got 1800 kids and you know, you would like to think that sometimes those, those schools have you know best tech. You just walk in and plug in. Doesn't always work that way. <laughs> right. you know, my system doesn't always talk to theirs. And so like that, that can be tricky. Like we had one where, I went on stage with, uh, with I, we only had about 600 kids, but it was in a gym. So the acoustics aren't great to begin with. And literally 11 seconds into the presentation, microphone cuts out. Huh. And so, so then I was like, all right, well, clock is ticking because they have to, at the one hour mark, they got to be up and out of here. Yeah. And so it's like, we'll test the coach voice and see how it works. And, uh, and it went pretty well. So it's, I don't know. I tell people, tell like my athletes, it's like you leave as little to chance as possible. And so in your preparation, like people see when you guys go out there and wrestle or play football, whatever, they see when you're in the field of competition. But what they don't see are the hours that you put in before that to make sure that you take care of everything that you can possibly take care of within your control. And so I try to do that. Like, you know, when when I was just doing the professional speaking thing and people would hear about a, a speaker's fee, they'd be like, wow, they pay you that much for an hour? And it's like, no, they don't. They pay me for every single day that I got up at 4 a.m. and worked for two hours before I started my morning routine so that I could get all of that done before my kids woke up. And they pay me for, you know, spending four months on content development for one 60-minute speech. You know, so it's, I, I try to eliminate as as much of that as possible and be as rehearsed as I can so that when the, 
when the inevitable happens, it's it's a little bitty speed bump and not like a huge obstacle. Yeah. Uh, now, one day, I'm sure I will fall into an orchestra pit or something like that. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, we haven't had anything terribly embarrassing happen yet. But yeah. uh, it's like I'm sure it's coming long enough timeline. You got to be careful about what you're saying because I've had things where there's like you know tongue twisters and sometimes you can say something you didn't mean to say right <laughs> and sometimes that can go, go terribly wrong especially when you're talking to kids but i'm glad you shared that though because that's really good about knowing your value and for anybody who's an entrepreneur or they're creating their own thing that's a really common trap to get into it's like oh well technically i'm only on site for an hour so it's like well what's an hour worth of work but like you said, there's so there's so much before that to know about. And I think a lot of people undercharge for their services, be it speaking, teaching, consulting, whatever that looks like, because they just think about their time on site and they're not thinking about all that time they're putting in. Right. Yeah. So I'm really glad you share that. All right. I got two questions for you. Okay. Yep. First question being, what is one thing you wish more people knew about you that not a lot of people do? Gosh, I'm not. I'm not sure there is anything at this point. I, uh, you know, when we had an article come out, um, you can find on Yahoo Sports. Brent Maycock wrote it a couple of years ago that they kind of chronicled my my history of of struggles with mental illness and things of that nature. And then after that, it was just like, all right, well, now I'm an open book. Right. Like, we put out the things I was trying to hide for the last 40 years. So at this time, it's like anybody asks me something, I'll tell them. You know, yeah. straight up. And so like, I don't think that there's quite honestly, anything that they, they don't already know. Um, the, uh, I would think that the one thing might be, it's like, I, I don't know if people actually believe me when I say it, because it sounds like coach speak, but like with whatever it is that you're doing in your life, well, I'll just make the wrestling analogy, but it's like, if you make it about championships, you'll never be satisfied with no matter how many you win. But if you make it about relationships, then it doesn't matter how many championships you win because like everything else is, is so much less important than your relationships, your love for other people. And like, I know that coaches are supposed to say that. I don't know if, if everybody believes it when coaches say it, but like, I really mean it. And it, it took me winning a state championship to realize that. Like when we won the first one and like I leave girl state to drive straight to boys state. And I, so I buckled that trophy in the back seat of the car so it wouldn't fall over. And like literally by the time I left the parking lot, I was like, well, well that was cool. All right. What's next? Wow. You know, it's like, so you got this thing sitting two feet away from you in the back seat. That's like, you worked your whole life for this and it's here. You can reach out and touch it. And it's like, whatever. Like that's not that you set those trophies on fire, man. And you've like, been wanting it so bad. Right. And it's like, and that was my moment of clarity where I was like, man, people are so much more important than stupid trophies and like awards and that kind of stuff. So yeah. uh, I guess if there's one thing I want people to know, it's like when, when I say that stuff at parent meetings, and all that, like, I mean it, man. Like it's, I think love is the most powerful force in the universe. And if you focus your attention on love and relationships, then things won't go wrong for you. Well, you answered my other question. What's that? Final message. Oh, that's it, man. It's, I mean, what else in the world can, can cause someone to go to war or cause a mom to pick up a truck off of her infant or like love is the most powerful force in the universe. And that's where we need to invest our time and our energy and not in the, the little things that really don't matter. And there's a, 
a, a law of reciprocity that goes along with that. It's like the more love you give to people, the more love you get in return. And I think that helps with a lot of the other things that we talk about at the Jones Project, which is, you know, like once, once you start giving love to other people and you feel that love come back, then you start to develop love for yourself. And I think that that's a big part of what a lot of kids are struggling with is finding a way to love themselves. And once you do that, then yeah, your, your, your sky is the limit, man. Well said. Let's go flying. Thanks for being here, coach. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me, man. This was so cool. Yeah. It's a blast. Great setup. I love your podcast. (laughs) Thank you for listening. And folks, we will see you next time.